Okay. Uh, as I was saying, <laughs> so uh, the, the, the topic was given to me, the text was given to me, and he says, we just think it's within your wheelhouse. And so when I read it over, I discovered that it's all about groaning. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but um, we're going to look at the text today. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8 if you uh, have a Bible, Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 18 particularly uh, through 27, uh, but we'll get a little running start on that. The whole passage is indeed about groaning in this life. Uh, and when you think about it, that's the way life is. That's not new information. That's information that comes to us from even uh, 3,000 years ago. There was a fellow by the name of Solomon. He was the wisest king, supposedly, of Israel. He was the last king of the United Kingdom. His father was King David, who you may have heard about. Uh, and Solomon wrote some Proverbs, and he wrote a book in the Bible that we call Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes simply means to the assembly, to the gathering. And so these words were instructions for the people at that time. And even though they were written 3,000 years ago, they're kind of instructive for us today. He wrote this in the very beginning. He said, I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. Are you depressed yet? Uh, maybe you've come to the same conclusions in your life. Maybe you haven't lived long enough to come to those conclusions yet. But in reality, life isn't always what we expect it to be. Uh, even if it's a bowl full of roses, there are thorns in those roses. And uh, when you reach in to pluck the rose, you sometimes get stabbed. Uh, the truth is, life has a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and we work our way through it challenged by the things that drag us down. And the question is, why is that? Maybe you've had somebody talk to you and say, well, if, if God is so good, why is our world so bad? Or why do good thing, bad things happen to good people? You might even ask the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Because there doesn't seem to be any even keel, any uh, smooth uh, way of working our way through life. Life has its challenges. Life has its ups and downs. When we come to Romans 8, uh, the Apostle Paul has been writing about life in Christ. He begins by saying there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he works through that and shows us what that looks like. And you've been looking at that for the last several weeks as uh, Pastor Phil and the team have been taking you through uh, Romans chapter 8. Today we come into the middle section of that. And we've seen the work and the role of the Holy Spirit. That's the key to understanding how life works for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Or I should say, He is the key because He, the Holy Spirit, is a person, the third person of the Trinity, as we've already sung this morning. The Apostle Paul brings us to this section, verses 18 to 27, and he begins right exactly where King Solomon left off. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. 
Instead, he explains why meaninglessness touches everything. But then he tells us, don't worry, that's about to change. And here's the good news. You and I, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, have a vital, important part to play in that change. And that's what Paul is writing about today. So let's explore what that looks like. Verses 18 and 19 say this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Here's the shorthand of that. The spirit of life has destined God's children for glory. Your destiny is not in this world. It's in the world that's coming, that's breaking in on us already. But not yet. We live in this stage that theologians like to call the already and the not yet. Whatever that means. But it means that the world in which we live presently isn't the world that God has promised to us. It isn't the world that God has destined us for. And Paul begins by showing us that there are sufferings in this present time. Does that surprise you? How many of you have lost a loved one this past year? How many of you have been ill? How many of you have had a challenge in a relationship with another person? Maybe you've gone through a divorce. Maybe somebody close to you is going through a divorce. Or you've lost job. There are sufferings in this present time. Now, it's interesting the word that's used for sufferings here is the same word that is used for Christ's suffering, the passion of the Christ. The word is pascha. And yet it's more expansive than that. Jesus Christ suffered once for all, once for us, in a way that we do not suffer. But we still enter into suffering. And indeed, Paul says, just a few verses earlier, that we need to enter into the sufferings of Christ so that we may reign with Christ, we may rule with Christ afterwards. And all of that becomes part of this picture of the already and the not yet. Because life as we see it presently, is according to our experience. But there is a life that God wants us to grab hold of that is not according to our experience now, but it is according to God's purpose. And when God purposes to do something, He never fails. The glory that is going to be revealed to us has no comparison to our present suffering. You can't compare what we're going through right now to the greatness and the glory and the wonder and the splendor and the majesty of what God has in store for us. We can contrast it, and that's what I'll do in just a few moments, but we cannot compare it. For this creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed, and there is the key. Eagerly waits with anticipation is a reference, and and it occurs, that little phrase occurs three times in this section. And it always has this in mind. That, think of a sailor on an old sailing ship. And they're up on the crow's nest, which is at the top of 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 the mizzen mast, or the top mast. And they're in this little crow's nest up there, and their purpose is to scan the horizon. They're looking out at the horizon, and what are they looking for? They're looking for their destiny. They're looking for for land. And when land is spotted, 
You've all seen the old movies. Land ho! Okay. They know that they're drawing close to their final place, their final harbor. That's what it means to eagerly anticipate. To crane our necks upward, if you will. To look outward and to see what God has in store for us. And to eagerly anticipate that. In fact, to live in anticipation of that. Not just to live as though, well, okay, that's going to happen someday. But to prepare ourselves now for the way that we will live eternally. And that is what this text is speaking of. And what does it rely on? It relies on God's sons to be revealed. Now, when it speaks of God's sons, it includes God's daughters too. The idea is this, that those who are children of God, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and become part of his forever family, they are uniquely in God's family and they uniquely share in the inheritance that God has for them, that God has provided for them through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the the heir apparent to the throne. He He is uniquely God. But God has, in creation, created us to be his children as well. And so we human beings all share in being God's children by, in, in the sense that he has called us to have fellowship with him, to walk with him, to know him personally. And his intention for us from the very beginning was that we would reign with him over the physical world. If you look into the Old Testament, you'll see that his purpose for the divine beings, those that we call angels, those that we call other messengers of God, the seraphim and the cherubim, his purpose for them was that they would rule with him over the spiritual world. And so we have the unseen world and we have the seen world. And God has created beings to live in those worlds, to rule with him. The problem is in both worlds there has been rebellion. The rebellion of the spirit world against God, we think of when we think of Satan and the demons. The rebellion in the physical world, well, you just have to look around you or within you and you understand that we have rebelled against God. And so we're not living up to the standards that God has called us to live up to. We cannot fully reflect the image of God that he has placed within us. That's the problem that we face in our world today, but there's coming a time. And so we don't see ourselves as fully in the place that God wants us to be seen. We don't reveal the glory that God has placed within our hearts. He has placed eternity in our hearts, the psalmist tells us. But all that is marred by sin. There's coming a day when the very presence of sin over us will be, rebe- will be gone. And we will be revealed completely and fully the way God wants us to be seen. The way he has made us to be eternally. To explain the true identity of God's children is a matter of God's revelation. It's not something that you and I can observe here and now. And the Apostle Paul goes all the way back to creation and its corruption to explain how this worked. And so... We come to the text that says all creation groans. All creation groans. Ravaged by futility. 
The creation was subjected to futility. Now, your translation might use a different word there. The translation I'm reading out of today, by the way, is the Christian Standard Bible. I felt it hit a good medium between the two, even though it's Southern Baptist. And, uh, and, and so it, it, it brings us along uh, in the text, and it's very understandable to read. It says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. As I said, humanity was created in the image of God. We were created to represent God here on earth, to carry out his purposes as his stewards, as managers of his creation. But when we rebelled against Yahweh, against God, we brought all physical creation down, not just ourselves. Everything came down with us because we were stewards over that creation. And when we could no longer steward according to God's plan, we tried to steward according to our plan. And whenever that happens, whenever we try to do things according to our plan, we end up in a mess. It's the history of humanity. We exchanged our freedom to serve God for the futility of serving ourselves. And we sacrificed our glory as co-rulers with God for the groaning as conspirators against him. That's the history of the human race. And so this futility is seen throughout creation because the very earth was cursed in our rebellion against God. No matter how hard we try, we cannot overcome the futility that was caused by our going rogue from God. You can't do it. Let's just look at a few examples. My favorite is medical research. The abuse of antibiotics. When we were missionaries in Europe, I got ill, went to the doctor, and the doctor prescribed, he says, oh, you've got a serious infection, respiratory infection, and uh, we need to really treat that. We're going to use some antibiotics. I'm going to give you 100 milligrams of tetracycline. And I laughed because here in America, that would be like 500 milligrams of tetracycline. And he says, we don't use antibiotics much over here because we've noticed that if you use the antibiotics, the bacteria just change to resist those antibiotics. And that's exactly what happened over the history. That was 30 years ago. Bacteria caused serious illness and death. And so we developed antibiotics to create and to kill rather the bacteria. We've increased our use of antibiotics here in America. Uh, we're beginning to learn a little bit about that now. Uh, but the bacteria adapt to resist the antibiotics. And so we create new antibiotics and guess what happens? The bacteria change to resist those antibiotics. And so we roll into futility. I've just recovered from COVID. And uh, even today, the uh, uh, reason I was masked earlier and, and I'm going to keep my distance from most of you is because I'm going through what they call a Paxlovid rebound. So I tested negative, went back to work, and felt a little off, tested again a week later, and tested positive. Immediately called my doctor and said, what just happened? And they said, well, you're having what we call a Paxlovid rebound. It means that the Paxlovid, the antivirals, didn't work as good on the virus as we thought it would. 
And so you're having all the symptoms, but don't worry, you're not contagious. That was good for me, but not for our infectious controls nurse at work. So I'm not going to go back to work until next Saturday. Uh, But she said, that's okay. The community has a different standard. So you can work in the community. You just can't function in long-term care. Now, I don't know how that works. But it sounds like gobbledygook to me. And, and that's an expression of futility. Uh, but not just medicine. It happens everywhere. Think of energy, energy development. At the turn of the 20th century, the internal combustion engines were hailed as the replacement of the unbearable pollution from horses in urban areas. All the methane was... Well, it's true. It's true. All, all, all the methane was building up. The, the buildings were tall. They were all eight stories. And, uh, and, and things would... All the gases would just kind of gather as as horses dropped everywhere. And so we we went to internal combustion engines. And at the turn of the 21st century, we're told that electric vehicles are going to save the earth from the internal combustion engine that has polluted the air all around us. And so uh, we no longer are going to depend on fossil fuels. Unfortunately, to get to those electric uh, vehicles... Uh, we have to have child laborers mine the rare minerals around the world that are essential to operate those electric vehicles. And we have no plan for disposing of or replacing uh, or recycling the spent batteries. That's called futility. Think of diplomacy. Well, if we call it that. Think of the military. We're told that fighting wars will end war. They don't say it in so many words, but you hear it over and over again, every night on the news. In 1918, at the 11th hour of the 11th day in the 11th month, the war to end all wars concluded in the Versailles Treaty. Apparently it didn't work. That very treaty carried the seeds of World War II 20 years later. And here we are, 76 years after the end of World War II, And the global realities that were part of the world then are still part of the world. We're trying to live according to our own rules. We want what we want, and we don't defer to others, and we don't turn our attention toward God. In fact, whole industries and ideologies are dependent on fomenting the self-destruction of war, but to package it as self-preservation. This is called futility. Solomon was right. Yet, Well, God's plan for us was disrupted and delayed, it wasn't destroyed. God's plan is still working itself out in our world. We may take two steps forward and one step backward, and we may try to lean into progress, only to find out that it's regress in some areas, because we can't seem to get it right. And so people look at us as Christians and they say, what on earth is God doing? This is what God is doing. God redeemed those who turned back to him in faith and love. And when God became human in Jesus, and when he died to remove the penalty of our rebellion, death itself, he also rose in his physical body, unencumbered by creation's curse, And he is now renewed to live eternally. And he lives forever in a human body, restored to the right hand of God the Father, 
And He is waiting to come for those of us who are His children, part of His family, and He will redeem our bodies in the future so that we will have a body like His and we will reign with Him eternally. That's exactly what His purpose was back at creation. But it took Jesus Christ to come, to live, to die, to rise again, to ascend into the, into the right hand of God the Father, and to come again in the future to fulfill that purpose and that plan. What on earth is God doing? He's working out His plan. You and I just don't have eyes to see it because we're looking at other things. But when by faith we are placed in Christ, Romans 8.1, we too still suffer in this world. We are cursed by our selfish rebellion and our mismanagement. But we're also promised that one eternal day our soul and our body, and that's what makes Christianity unique, our soul and our body will be fully redeemed. Fully, completely. No more COVID. No more illnesses. No more things that drag us down. No more aging. I didn't think that was significant before, but it's becoming more significant every day. (laughs) We will be renewed and restored to rule over a renewed creation, just as Jehovah God first intended when He created us in His image. Futility is a revolving door. It has no exit. The worth of people created in God's image is determined by how they talk, by what they wear, by what they drive, by where they live, what color skin they have, what team they cheer. Our world has abandoned the intrinsic creator-bestowed worth that He has placed within our souls. Instead, they've chosen extrinsic values. And those values are dehumanizing at every turn. The greatest futility that has enveloped all creation, however, is the futility that Alexander Solzhenitsyn pointed to. He was a philosopher, a Russian philosopher, at the end of the 20th century. And he wrote a lot of stuff. But the most significant thing he said is this in the late 20th century. Somebody asked him, What's the root cause of your country's demise? We could say the same about our country and should. He said it in four words. Men have forgotten God. Johnny Erickson Tata says this. Should be on one of those screens coming up. No other religion, no other promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Johnny Erickson Tata became a quadriplegic in a swimming accident when she was a teenager. And so she has lived her whole life in a wheelchair. She's had to have people help her do everything necessary. And yet she's able to say that there is no other religion, no other at all that promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. And you can believe that she really believes that. And she is looking forward to that new body in Christ. It is only in the gospel of Christ that hurting people find incredible hope. I want to turn to that incredible hope piece now. We've looked at futility long enough, haven't we? And yet, even in this new creation, where we have hope, we groan. 
But we don't groan like the rest of creation, hopelessly. We groan with hope. New creation groans, anticipating our future. We groan because we know what's in store for us. And it isn't here yet. And so it's like getting up in the morning. You groan as you hit the floor, don't you? If you don't, you will. <laughs> but you're working your way through it. And you, you, the, the aches and the pains and all of that, after a while you say, well, at least it proves I'm still alive. Paul writes these words, verse 23. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. Notice he says we were saved. Salvation is accomplished. In this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, all that is ours for being saved isn't seen yet. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Five times in this verse, in these verses, the word hope appears. Five times. Do you think he's making a point? (laughs) He is. Hope is essential to those of us who are part of the new creation who are in Christ Jesus, who are walking in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Hope is essential to us as we live out this world. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we groan. But we do so eagerly waiting with patience or perseverance because we know that the best is yet to come. And we will wait for it because we know it will be ours. There is no denying that. There is no missing the mark. There is nothing that will keep us from it. The essence of what we lost in our rebellion was spiritual bodies that were fit for eternity in fellowship with God to accomplish His purpose. The Apostle Paul explains that God's Holy Spirit is acting on our behalf to restore what was lost. And this will benefit all creation. You see... We have the Spirit of God. He is the first fruit. He is the beginning of that life in us. If the Spirit of God doesn't live in us, we don't have life. Without the Spirit of God, there's no eternal life. Christ sent His Holy Spirit to us so that we will know a foretaste, an appetizer of what that eternal life looks like. But we're still groaning under the curse of this old creation. There's going to come a time when that first fruit blossoms into the whole tree. And we'll be able to enjoy the fruit of eternity forever in all of its fullness. No longer groaning. The stage has been set. We were saved. In the Greek, that's that's called an aorist tense. It means that's been accomplished already. It's once for all time. The stage is set. If you're a follower of Christ, you are saved. Everything in the future is already in your hands. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the curtain hasn't yet gone up, and that's why we hope. The final act is still in the future, but it is certain that our drama of redemption is going to have a happy ending. And so, yes, we groan, but we groan with anticipation of our future. And again, that, that, that little phrase that was uh, mentioned earlier uh, of eagerly anticipating, scanning the horizon, that occurs again here at the end of this of verse 25. We eagerly wait for it with patience. We are scanning the horizon with patience. Sometimes our patience wears a little bit thin. But that's our goal. And then finally, the, the, the third groaner, if you will, is none other than God Himself. Verses 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit groans, companioning God's children to glory. I love this. It begins with these words, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way as we groan within ourselves as part of the new creation. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This tells us that God is with us. When Jesus came, favorite name for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus rose again, is God no longer with us? Because Jesus has gone into the right hand of God the Father, into glory? No, He sent His Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is with us. God is still with us. God never leaves us. He comforts us in our sorrows, in our groanings. He stands with us. And not only that, when we can't even express how bad it is, the Holy Spirit shares our sorrow and our pain and He expresses it for us. Inexpressible groanings. Some look at this and say, well, the Spirit is speaking in tongues here. No. The, the Greek is really clear. There's no sound. It's an inexpressible groaning. Have you ever gotten to that point where you have an inexpressible groan? Just deep inside of you, you don't have the words, you don't even have the sound, but you just, ugh, inside. The Spirit of God is so in tune with us. He knows who we are. He knows how we feel. He identifies with us. And as such, He prays for us. He intercedes for us. As Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God the Father, intercedes for us and advocates for us at the throne of grace, the Holy Spirit, on the very throne of our life, intercedes with us, prays for us. And so the Spirit of God within us and the Spirit of God, if you will, with the Father, the, the, the Son with the Father, all are on our side. All are praying. The Spirit of God within us intercedes for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, intercedes for us. God the Father answers those prayers in the affirmative. Because it is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
They cannot be at odds with each other. They work in perfect unity because they are of one essence. And all of that essence is on your side. All of that essence is to bring you fully to be the person God wants you to be, that He has created you to be, that He has formed all of creation to come to that conclusion until everyone sees who you really are in Christ, until you are revealed. Because when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will also see all the glory, glorious things that Jesus Christ as Lord has done. And the most marvelous thing above that is redemption of your body and my body, fitting us for eternity. Until then, we have more than thoughts and prayers. We have the spirit of life. We have the spirit of God, as he said, as he's spoken of here in chapter 8. The spirit of Christ. The spirit of adoption. He helps us in our weakness. And so when we're overwhelmed by futile thinking, this Holy Spirit intercedes silently for us. And Jesus Christ intercedes in heaven. And he reframes our minds so that we can better image God until the day that we can do so in risen spiritual bodies. This is the will of God. This is what it speaks of at the end of that verse. According to the will of God. God's will here is very specific. It is his desire that we live with him forever in risen bodies. And all that it takes to accomplish that, the Spirit of God intercedes in our, your life and in my life to make sure it happens. John R.W. Stott, one of my favorite expositors, he went to be with the Lord some 13 years ago now, wrote this. This is our Christian dilemma caught in the tension between what God has inaugurated by giving us His Spirit and what He will consummate, that's British for finish, in our final adoption and redemption. We groan with discomfort and longing. The indwelling Spirit gives us joy and the coming glory gives us hope. But the interim suspense gives us pain. And so I want to look one more time at this cycle of futility if you will. Only change it up a bit. God created you and me to be His earthly family, to rule over creation. Genesis 1. But in Genesis 3, humans chose to live free from God. It's a horrible expression of freedom. It brings us to bondage and to futility. All creation, however, suffers under our human freedom. God acted in Christ to restore willing humans to his family. And all creation ultimately is released from futility and enjoys true freedom because of what Christ has accomplished through his family. And that, my friends, is glory. Let's have a few takeaways, if you could. I didn't put these on the screen. You'll have to scribble them fast. First of all, we need to understand why individuals our systems, and everything in creation is meaningless and futile. It's because we've forgotten God. Futility will continue until people come back to God. Second, realize that God alone is our source of hope over futility. There is no other source. There is no other hope than Jesus Christ 
the one and only God, given for us, risen for us, and coming again. Third, we need to live in daily anticipation that God is going to fully redeem our bodies and our souls and to fit us to rule with Christ over a renewed creation. Read Revelation 21 and 22 with that in mind. It'll be a powerful experience. And then finally, go ahead and groan. But don't lose sight of the glory that God has prepared for you and for all of His children. Go ahead and groan. It's your right as part of the renewed creation. But don't groan like the rest of creation. Groan in patient hope of all that God has in store for us. Now one final thought. Sadly, if you are not part of God's forever family, if you are here today not as a follower of Jesus Christ, not as a Christian, your groaning is incomparable, not to the glory that awaits you, but the further groaning that awaits you eternally, separated from God. And so I want to appeal to you to turn from the futility of this life's existence in faith to what God offers you in Jesus Christ, to turn to Him and know for certain that He has an incomparable life eternal for you if you're willing to do so. Confess your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ as the one who died to forgive your sins and to conquer that power of sin over you and to give you eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have made all of this possible in what we have just celebrated as Easter, the resurrection to life eternal. After dying for our sins, you arose, you rose for our justification and you will come one day to fully redeem us, to make us completely all that you've intended us to be from the very beginning of creation. And Lord, we look to that day of revelation not just the revelation of who you are, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father, but that we will be revealed too with you in glory. What a marvelous prospect. Help us to live in anticipation of that in ways that please you and benefit our creation here. This we pray in your name. Amen.